once again, time for Santanatam. Uh, if there's any questions in the room, this will all be in English today. Uh, I would like to ask how to start the Metta Bhavana. Metta Bhavana. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and if you use it as the start of the meditation mm -hmm. to create Pramod, and then after we can do better meditation or any, and can you tell in step by step? Thank you. Uh, well, there are many different ways of uh, cultivating Metta. Um, one of the, uh, the, the methods is uh, to um, bring to mind some person or some animal well, that you have a great deal of natural uh, affection for. Uh, so there's something that is very, very dear, naturally very dear to you. And uh, so bringing that, the image of that, that person uh, to, uh, to mind. And then, uh, and then bringing the attention very deliberately down to your, your heart, the jitjai. And uh, so in, in a way then kind of forgetting that person and bringing the attention to that feeling. So, so in that moment, uh, here is the feeling of, of friendliness. Here is the feeling of well-wishing, of, uh, of uh, affection of kindness and so uh, with meta practice i feel it's uh, most important to, to to know that feeling the aroma the, the actual emotion of kindness and well-wishing uh, benevolence because um, meta is just a word it, it's a word referring to a quality and so sometimes with meta bhavana we can get lost in all the words and forget the actual quality, the uh, aroma, the, the uh, attitude of the heart. So getting a feeling for that quality of, of loving kindness, that kind of warmth in the heart. And then um, one method that I found that's, that's quite helpful, and again, it's kind of connected with um, that uh, both the, the um, sort of the receptive and expressive side of metta um, is to then establishing that feeling within the, the heart to then uh, combine that with uh, anapanasati so but feeling the breath right in your in your chest rather than in your nostrils but feeling the the rhythm of the breathing right at your heart and then uh, with the in-breath to um, to take that that warm feeling and to fill your own body with that and you can use words like may i be well or may i be at ease and then as you breathe out may all beings be well may all beings be at ease or you can say may i be at peace or may all beings be at peace you choose your own words and so then uh you're establishing these these sort of basic uh elements of the practice of one the genuine feeling of well-wishing of metta and then also staying focused um, uh, so that i found that's um 
is a helpful way of establishing that that attitude and also because of connecting with anapanasati there's the quality of focus and uh, not getting lost in too many details about who you're spreading metta to you know and how far and so on so that's that's one method that uh, uh, i found very very helpful and then to um uh, say good give a, a, a if you're particularly interested to develop metta as a practice then giving that a, a good amount of time 20 minutes or half an hour at the beginning of the sitting so it's really um fully established i, I was with a, a um uh, uh with lumpo tomato on a on a two-week long retreat he was leading once in in america and um this was inside a uh a monastery and uh the um uh, i think people were expecting you know lumpo tomato to give lots of very kind of uh high wisdom teachings uh, or special kind of practices for the first five days it was just this practice may I, may i be at, may i be at peace may all beings be at peace uh, may i be at peace may all beings be at peace and uh, you can almost feel like people think when is he going to get onto the you know the 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 the, the high dhamma when is he going to get onto the the profound practice but it was really very uh very very skillful very simple very straightforward and helped really um ground the whole group in that attitude of of kindness and then after five days then he started uh, teaching more in terms of vipassana and giving uh, more of the kind of wisdom teachings but for five days it was just may i be at peace may all beings be at peace may i be well may all beings be well and so it was you you really thought this is the only this is the only tune playing on the radio <laughs> this, is, this is all there is so okay just go with it and uh it had a very very wonderful effect so there was a question both of you raised your hands together so ajan um why did you decide to become a pakao were there any particular instances that inspired you to do so and subsequently how did your parents react after you ordained <laughs> did they visit Wat Papong? And throughout the years, uh, was there any moment in time when you felt like disrobing? There's a few questions there. Um, well, I was 21 when I, I walked into Wat Pananachat. I'd left England just after my 21st birthday. So I graduated from university in June had my 21st birthday in September, uh, September the 2nd, and then got on the plane uh, September the 7th. And then I walked into Wat Pananashat January the 8th. So I, I was uh, 21 years old. Um, my parents, they knew I was a bit eccentric. The, uh, my sister's a very conservative, kind of ordinary, middle-class English women very um very modest uh, uh very conventional I was a bit of a wild character so it was sex drugs and rock and roll and uh the, the kind of people that I I I brought home 
uh, friends and people I brought back from the pub with me or people I invited over for the weekend. Lots of colorful characters. I remember one, one evening after one session at the pub, my, uh, a, a group of people from the local art college come back to our place. And my, my father, we had a very narrow little staircase in this old uh, farmhouse we had. It was built in the 15th century, a little twisty staircase. My father was going up the staircase from his office, coming down the staircase from the bathroom with one of my art student friends. And he had a, a leopard skin jacket, had long red ringlets, his hair, and um, PVC, bright red PVC trousers. And they met on the staircase. And I, could hear, I could almost hear my dad going, I'm not sure what this is, but whether this is from, whether this, this being is from this planet or not, but he's one of my boy's friends. Okay, just ignore and walk past. So they knew I had, uh, I was uh, eccentric and even going off to study psychology in university was pretty weird for rural English community I grew up in. So um, they were prepared for me to do something kind of exotic. Uh, and people had different ideas about what I could do or should do with, with my life. And um, my, uh, my father uh, was a dog expert. Uh, dog, and his particular breed he was specialized in was bull terriers. And in the 1930s, he'd worked managing the kennels for a very wealthy man called Raymond Oppenheimer, who was uh, part of the De Beers Diamond Corporation. So Raymond didn't have to work, he just collected the money. And my father looked after his uh, Bull Terrier kennels. So um, Raymond wasn't a particularly religious person, but when I was born, then he asked Raymond to be my godfather, to connect me to some money. And Raymond's business partner, Eva Wetherill, was the godmother of one of my other sisters. So they were good friends. It wasn't com completely commercial. But there was this deal that if I got a university degree, uh, my godfather would uh, open the doors at De Beers Diamonds. And at that time, De Beers controlled nine out of every ten, 10 diamonds in the world. So it was a guaranteed lucrative career. But I was not interested in them. Um, I was kind of playing with the idea. I liked advertising. I liked artwork. And I was studying psychology. So I was toying with the idea of going into advertising and um, using kind of art and creativity and psychology in that field. And then I had a, an, an insight on a bus in London. And uh, I don't know if any of you are living in London in the 1970s. But there was an advertisement for diamonds and uh, it was a, a, a big billboard poster and i was on the top story of a bus going around the big roundabout at the elephant castle if any of you know that and on this poster there was a woman's chin and to the top of her chest and a very elegant lady's neck with a black ribbon around her neck and this very very beautiful diamond brooch pinned to this choker and the caption was, isn't it about time you bought your wife a diamond before somebody else does? So I thought, I was a pretty liberal kind of a person, but I thought, that is evil. 
do I really want to? And then just in the corner of the poster, De Beers, you know, they didn't have to announce themselves. Basically, if, if it was a diamond, De Beers owned it. So they didn't, didn't even have to really put their name on the advert. Like Rolls Royce, you don't see adverts for Rolls Royce cars because they they sell everything they can make. Anyway, so I thought, okay, that's diamonds out the door. <laughs> so uh, all kinds of things I could have done in academic fields, carrying on at the university, where I was uh, interested to be to go into acting. I had a few friends who were drama students, and uh, I like the theatre. I used to act a lot when I was a, a school kid. But none of the, these seemed, whenever I thought about any of those as a career, I'd go, yeah, really? You know, how many wise old actors do you meet? Not many, usually alcoholic and egotistical. <laughs> yeah. And then the business world, okay, you can, have, you can have lots and lots of money and you can have beautiful places to live, but really, so what? So, uh, not to go into too much detail, but about five or six times during my teens, from when I was about 13 to when I was 21, I'd been in situations that were absolutely like picture book perfect. It's like just like on the, the cover of the chocolate box, like absolutely flawless, beautiful environment, lovely day, beautiful people, the perfect situation. And I was miserable. And this had ha in different places with different groups of people. And this had happened five or six times. It's like, everything is perfect. Why am I not happy? And so by the time that happened about the fifth or sixth time, it's like, I can't get away from this. And it was really clear that if your mind is not happy, it doesn't matter how much money you've got, how many degrees you've got, how famous an actor you are, whether you've written a great novel, you know, you've got a beautiful cottage in the country with a, you know, a lovely wife and 12 kids running around the garden. It doesn't matter. And that was like absolutely clear to me by the time I was 21. I don't know why, but it was that was inescapable. Well, I, I tried to escape it by drinking, <laughs> but uh, that was... That was the thing, like, you've got to do something about your mind, and a, a psychology degree did not do it, <laughs> with all respect to any psychologists present here, that uh, uh, academic psychology did not answer that question. So when I, I left England, uh, then it was with, well, uh, the only thing that seems meaningful and interesting is spirituality, and the spirituality that comes out of Asia seems far more meaningful and realistic than sort of Judeo-Christian spirituality in Europe. So when I walked into Wat Nanachart, it was sort of with all of that behind me, and that uh, so no other kind of career was remotely interesting. Spirituality was the only thing that seemed meaningful, and, uh, and I was looking for a way to change my mind in a radical fashion. So the ingredients were all there, and so um, I, when I walked into Wat Nanachart uh, in January of 78, it was like, wow, this is exactly what I was looking for. It's called Buddhism. Okay, well, it's, it's pretty close to some, you know, a lot of the ideas I've been trying to figure out myself growing up since I was about 10 or 11. And not only has somebody thought it all out before, but they've done it 10,000 times better than I, I could. <laughs> And there's a whole community of people who want to come along and feed you every day. 
so you can do this. And they, they, they feel honored and happy that they can feed you every day for nothing. But, wow, this is too good to be true. So um, that's the background to why it was like, hey, this is perfect. I didn't like rules and I didn't like organized religion. I was a kind of hippie anarchist. So philosophically, I said, I object to all these rules. I don't believe in organized religion. But there, in a, a place with lots of rules and very old uh, uh, organized religion, those kind of protests sort of went off like the, the noise of the crickets in the forest, just sort of went off into the background. And the, the reality, the actuality of what I met was um, far more impactful, far more meaningful. So um, I couldn't believe my luck. I thought, this is amazing. This is exactly what I was looking for. So it, it literally never crossed my mind to think, oh, well, I'll, I'll learn some Buddhism here, and then I'll go back to England and have a life. It literally, I, it never occurred to me to be a lay Buddhist. But well, if this is available and you can do this the rest of your life, great. So I realized later on that not everybody thought that way. Uh, but to me, it, it literally did not cross my mind to, to think I could you know, live as, a, as a, a lay Buddhist. Like, well, why would you bother? You have to make money and, kind of, and <laughs> do all of that other stuff where you can live really simply close to the earth and uh, with all these really good people and... Um, Get and get free free lunch every day. This is you know you'd be crazy to walk away from this. So that was my pattern of thinking, and then so then uh, as other Western travelers came along, I kind of naively assumed that they would think the same way, and then I and then they'd after a week or two they'd go off back to the beach, and I go, where are you going? Like I. And I remember saying to one of the monks, I say, you know, this place is incredible. It's amazing. I mean, where's everyone going to stay? Where once word gets out, you know, there'll be the queue all the way down the road to, to Warin. And I remember this, this monk here called Aranyapo, who'd already disrobed and come back once or twice and had a lot of suffering as a monk. He kind of gave me this look that went on for about 15 miles. And I don't think it'll be a problem. <laughs> There won't be much of a queue and so that. Oh, but you know, this is incredible. This is amazing. This is wonderful. Of course, everybody in the world will think this is the most perfect thing. This is, uh, I think, um, not everybody is going to see it that way. So, and it was right. There wasn't a queue all the way down to where in. Yeah. So, um, after about two or three weeks of being there, to sort of follow up about my what my parents. How, you know, what my parents thought. So, you know, I was 21. I'm the youngest child, the only son in the family. And uh, I was naively ignorant of the kind of expectations they had. They had said, once you're 21, you can make your own choices. You can do whatever you like. So, I thought, okay, great. It's up to me. <clears throat> so, uh, but I had this feeling that... Um, I remember I was sweeping the pathway outside the front of my kuti, and I thought, you know, my parents, they're, they're very conservative, ordinary English middle-class people. They, they were both the youngest children of older parents. 
My, my mother was born in 1920. My father was born in 1913. His parents were born in 1863 and 1875. My mother's parents were born in uh, 1879 and 1892. They're from a completely different era when the when Britain ruled the world, you know, had the British Empire covered the world in red. That, me going off to become a Buddhist monk in the forest in Thailand, that is so weird. It's such a contrast to their ordinary conservative Edwardian Victorian upbringing that they're never going to understand this. It was a kind of interesting moment because as I was standing there with a the broom, I thought maybe the kindest thing I can do for my family is to go back to England, find a nice girl to get married to, produce curly-haired children who have good table manners, speak with proper English accents and get good marks at school. And, and that'll be, uh, and they can run around the garden and my parents can give them chocolate bars on their birthdays. And, and, uh, and, this, and then it was like, almost like hearing a voice in my ear that just said, that would be uh, an unkindness to uh, to to your family. It would be an unkindness to anybody that you married and you're a parent of, and it would be an unkindness to yourself. It was just, it was really like this extraordinarily clear thought, and it almost kind of stopped in my tracks. It wasn't like a kind of Deva talking to me, but it was it was this very very clear thought, and it, it took shape in a, in a single moment, like. I would be performing this role of being a nice middle-class English bloke, but I really wouldn't care. I wouldn't care about the work. I wouldn't really care about the people I was married to or a parent of. I would just be performing a role. I can act, but I think there was this really clear sense of that's a horrible thing to do to people. And, and uh, in that same moment, it became clear if you just... Uh, act from a place of sincerity, then sooner or later they will they will understand. You're not doing this in order to cause them grief, uh, but uh, it will they'll necessarily they'll be unhappy about it. But you're not doing it in order to make them unhappy. So just trust that you're doing it for a a, a good reason and in a sincere way, and then sooner or later they will appreciate that. And so I, I decided to act on that. And uh, so I realized I better break this slowly. So in those days, we would send aerograms, the kind of the, the thin blue fold up letters. And so, oh, by the way, I'm staying in this Buddhist monastery. You know, six weeks later, oh, by the way, you know, I've, uh, I've shaved my head and I'm a, I'm a Pakao. I did a little drawing, a cartoon of myself, you know. I used to have thick, curly hair, so no one ever saw my ears. It was kind of buried under this bush of hair and a beard. And, um, and so then uh, I tried to break it gently, but it was pretty, pretty stressful because also this was in 1978. So uh, Laos had fallen communist. Uh, Cambodia was... Um, was uh, had fallen to the communists. You look at Ubon on the map. It doesn't give your mother a lot of ease of heart. My my son, my only son is joined some religious group uh, that we I don't know anything about in some weird corner of the world. It's a war zone. 
we could hear the big guns going across the, the river, you know, from, from Nanachan. So even though I tried to break it gently, it was uh, stressful. And again, it was completely outside the scope of, of anything that they would have expected for me. They knew that I was a bit of an extrovert character, but they didn't, they didn't think in terms of rules and religion. They, they were more thinking I was going to get arrested or uh, leave a, a, a string of, of uh, fatherless children around the world. And so when I was at, uh, in kindergarten, my, uh, apparently my, my headmistress, Mrs. Waller, said to my mother, um, he'll either end up as prime minister or in Pentonville jail. She didn't come up with, with Buddhist monk, but uh, even at the age of three or four, I was a bit extreme. So anyway, I tried to break it gently, but then it, it helped that I came back to England after um, a couple of years. My father had a heart attack, and so I came, came back after my first reigns as a monk. And it also helped that Chithurst Monastery had just opened up. My parents lived in Kent. Chithurst is in Sussex, the next county over. So I could visit my family and then stay at Chithurst. It took about 15 years. Um, Buddhism is that thing which is bad and wrong and took our son away from us. So that was the, the, the kind of fixed view. But it was after I started to get um, kind of worldly achievements, um, like going to conferences with the Dalai Lama or writing books and such like, then um, that was, uh, I realized that, oh, they need something to be proud of. And when I, I walked on a Tudong walk from Chithas Monastery in the south all the way up to the Scottish border, then uh, I called my, my parents from Manchester halfway along, and, and there was this kind of pride and excitement in their voices oh this is unique no one's ever done this before our boys kind of walking the length of england as a buddhist monk oh so i thought duh they need something to be proud of because now it's like well what are you what are your family up to oh my well, my you know my one daughter works in in the british embassy in moscow the other daughter she's a nurse in great ormond street hospital children's hospital my son is You know, small village, rural community is kind of tough. But then my son is walking the length of England, you know, just uh, that. Uh. So, yeah, it took 15 years, really, to find some kind of um, uh, a place where it fitted. And they were continually waiting for me to see sense and, and disrobe and get married and do the conventional thing. And then by the time my, my sister's... Uh, had reached about 40. Now, I was a Buddhist monk and making no noises whatsoever about ever leaving. And neither of my sisters were married. One was a, a diplomat, in the, uh, a, a Russian expert in the British embassy in Moscow. The other one was a children's nurse. And I was a Buddhist monk. And they thought, okay, all of our expectations about family and grandchildren, it's all gone. Okay, let's just change the program. So this kind of happened on its own. They sort of gave up on all of us. And then one of my sisters actually did get married, but didn't have any, any children. So it's a, a, a long, slow process. But um, the, um, 
particularly in times of crisis, then it would be my role as a Buddhist monk or as a spiritual teacher would be useful for about three days. And then uh, when there was some, some, a death in the family or some kind of major problem, then meditation, peacefulness, spiritual questions, they would become meaningful for about three days. And then after the third day, it's like, what do you want for breakfast? Yeah, what's on the telly? Yeah. And uh, back to the usual. So the last part of your question was... Uh, no, no. <laughs> I've thought of doing things that monks are not allowed to do. Yeah, which that's uh, standard operating procedure, I would think. Just would not argue with that. It's kind of ordinary, but uh, no, it's like um, again because of that. Those insights I had really as a, as a teenager that the mind is the most important thing, and that um, living in in a monastery, living as a monk, living a celibate life, it's as simple as as can be. And if you uh, living in the commercial world, living with, with romantic relationships and responsibilities, uh, not being critical of anyone, but it makes things more complicated, generally. And so why would you make uh, why would you make it more complicated when it's challenging enough already? I mean, I'm not arriving at it as a, just as a logical process, but uh, yeah, it's uh, lay life has never attracted me one one bit. And uh, so um, uh, I realized that again, I'm, I'm, uh, uh, I'm not, uh, it's not that common to have that uh, kind of certainty or that single mindedness, um, but that's the how it's been for me. So it's a long answer, but uh, I could go on. <laughs> But me talking about the Atavada, but um, the, to me, the, the, the monastic life and the, the way of the Buddha was set up to be the maximally, maximally supportive conditions for mindfulness. And the more mindful you are, then the easier it is to wake up. And uh, so it seems well. These the conditions of a monastery, like a like a retreat, like this, it's structured completely to support mindfulness. And the more mindful you are, the less you suffer. So QED, as they say. I had a completely different question, but since you've just spoken to it, I was reflecting on. Like, is it because the matrix is so compelling? <laughs> like when we go back into the world, mm -hmm. um, like it just is so easy to practice here and I just feel very present and this is so important. And then we go back into the matrix and everything's supported about, you know, a different way of life. Um, so I'm thinking of you as like Morpheus. You have seen that, the movie, <laughs> The Matrix? Yes, yes. <laughs> Very familiar. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I'm not sure my question, but 
it's much harder for, for me to be clear when I'm in the matrix at home. And it, here it's like I can, it's totally the most important thing I could do. And then I'll start throwing dust in my eyes as I leave. Um, so uh, well, I'm not sure what the question is. Again, uh, it never occurred to me to try and live as a lay Buddhist. And I, I never did. I mean, like, my I was a, a layman living at Wat Pananashat for three weeks before I became a, a Pakao, an Anagarika. So that's my experience of lay practice. I never attempted to hold down a job or have a, a relationship with anybody or use money uh, in uh, in uh, Buddhist practice. So I don't really have any direct experience of what it's like in that particular zone of the matrix. But um, they, uh, so uh, I, I feel that you know we, we make our own decisions. We each have our own living situations and responsibilities. So. So doing the best we can to at least structure things to be as simple as possible, to not be creating extra complications, um, then that, those are moment-by-moment decisions that we can make to help our life to be uncomplicated and support that quality of, of mindfulness and, and uh, the, uh, the, the conditions that conduce to, to liberation. But uh, so the... Um, I'm not sure what the what your question was. If there was much of a question, I have a different question. But if some, unless someone else has a question, go ahead. Yeah. So this was my original question. Um, reflecting on the practice, the guidance from this morning, uh, working with a bit of a people problem, a sometimes some people problem, and so working on it noticing I was thinking of it like for some reason it came in like Tonglen taking and giving mm -hmm. but in the opposite so taking on too much from people mm -hmm. and maybe giving for example um or getting what I don't want not getting what I want from people um and then I was you know you mentioned it yesterday in, in the interview about working with the reactivity in the body. So I felt tight chest and, and I have, you know, done this many times over, but really felt like it's right here. It's heavy. There's a sense of unworthiness there. Um, and then bringing in a bit of a mantra, like no one can take away your wholeness or your centeredness. No one can give you that centeredness or wholeness. And then what you said the other night, awareness is the solid ground serenity is the final word so could you speak to that process and 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 then maybe there's the advanced practice of self-view in there somewhere so there's a few different things in there um with respect to taking on too much from other people, that's very familiar territory for for me, um, personality-wise. Uh, I I would be um, always drawn into, well, not always, but very regularly drawn into uh, taking responsibility for other people's problems and their suffering, and that people would sort of 
spill out their issues and I would make them mine and feel it was my job to make them happy. And if they weren't happy, I was failing. And so I, I did that a lot through my, uh, my life. And, um, and so I, I, I suffered a great deal. I was a very tearful child. Uh, so I, I felt uh, uh, a, uh, uh, very strongly uh, a kind of a, I kind of overdid the compassion side. Uh, one of the and that one of the family stories. I don't have any memory of this, but my, uh, when we were uh, when we were, my, me and my sisters were quite small, there was uh, a, a TV show on a little black and white TV of Heidi, and my mother recounts how that she came in and then all three of us were sitting there watching the watching the television, and my sisters are kind of sort of glued to the screen with sort of uh, interested and uh, and uh, smiling expressions. Uh, and I was sitting there with tears pouring down my face. Oh, funny boy. You know, <laughs> he's the boy. He's supposed to be the kind of rough and tumble type. And the, the girls are supposed to be the compassionate, sense, sensitive ones. But I was um, just pouring with tears over this tragic situation of the, the, the sick girl on the mountainside. So um, it took me a long time to not be drawn into other people's issues. And uh, I often quote uh, a particular dialogue I had when uh, uh, it was such a strong habit, I didn't even realize that I did it that much. It was just kind of how life was. But I was at uh, a novice at Wapananachat, and very, very few of the Thai people who came to visit spoke any English at all in the Isan, uh, Northeast. Uh, uh, most people don't speak any, didn't learn any English. Uh, and one occasion, uh, we tidied up after the mealtime, it was about 10 o'clock in the morning, and I was the only person around in the sala, in the meeting hall. And this uh, this fellow came along um, from a different province, and he was a military officer, and he was had heard about what Pananashat and wanted to visit. And so I was a junior person, but uh, I was uh, the only one around. So we started chatting, and he spoke pretty good English. So uh, um, I was talking about the place and discussing about Buddhism, and we got onto the subject of compassion. And I said, uh, "How well when I'm talking with people or I'm looking at situations, I always feel it's like it's my responsibility to make people feel all right or to to fix things. And if if uh, if uh, people are still unhappy, then I take it as as my fault. And so you know, I'm always suffering on account of other people's suffering. And he gave me this look like." Well, that's not how Buddhists practice compassion. And I said, "Oh, really?" And he said, "Yeah." So, because then, you know, if you're suffering on account of their 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 problems, then you got two people suffering instead of just one. I thought. And he said, "No." I, and I thought, "Well," it, and I was I felt like, "Well, that sounds a bit hard-hearted." And he said, "Well, you know, I I know that um, uh, I I do what I can to help others." And I know that if I could do more, I would do more, but I know there's also a limit to my capacity. It's not that I don't care. It's not that I'm not involved, but there's a limit to what I can do. There's a limit to the effect I can have. So why should I create suffering in myself about something that I can't do? Wow. It just had literally never crossed my mind. To think of it in that way, and that, and his, and that sense of I trust. Yeah, I'm a good-hearted person. 
if I could do more, I would do more. And it was, it was so clear that it was just speaking his own truth. And that um, that was uh, yeah, a strange Dharma lesson to get from a, a military person. <laughs> but that was uh, it really stuck with me. I thought, wow, that's, that's a whole different way of relating to compassion and caring. And so it took a long, long time having heard that and just sort of slowly trying to introduce that to to really work from that basis in terms of talking with other people and when you're with someone and they're very upset or they're you know tearful or some tragic situation in their life a partner is dying or they've they're, there's a crisis in their world to to really know I, I i do care i care a lot but i can't take the suffering away from this person i can offer some advice I can listen, but um, I can't take their pain away from them. If I could, I would, but I, this is the limit of what I can do. And and, even, and then even when people will say, you've you got to help me, you've got to help me, you know, it's up to you to help me, to, to be able to say, well, that's your thought. <laughs> You're completely welcome to have that expectation, but that's beyond what I can do, you know, you choose your words carefully, but uh, that uh, and also in the position of being a spiritual guide and you know, in the role of teaching, then you're kind of asking to be a to you know you're, it's understandable people expect you to have all the answers and to be able to fix everything, but uh, to be able to recognize no, I can uh, I can only do so much and. and beyond that is out of my capacity i can lift a hundred pound rock but i can't lift a 200 pound rock it's more than i can do and so that that it takes a lot of real sati kind of 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 a conversation and also body awareness of how you know you're sort of being drawn into somebody else's mood and oftentimes particularly giving advice or in that kind of counseling situation just consciously relaxing as I'm listening to someone and physically just breathing out, <laughs> relaxing. And so you're attuning to what's being said, but you're not being drawn in. Um, and even when people say, would say that, uh, kind of demand that you see it from their perspective, that to, uh, you know, if, if you cared about me, you'd be, you'd be as upset as I am. Like, and to be able to find the words to say no, <laughs> that I do care about you, and no, I'm not upset, or you know, you should be angry about this like I am. Otherwise, you uh, you're you're siding with the opposition, or you you don't care. Uh, if you cared, you'd be angry like me. And to to again not be drawn in, but to very respectfully be able to say, okay, that's your perspective, but. Uh, I feel, you know, I, I do care and I am concerned, but I don't feel angry or upset in the same way. I, I'm, it's not out of disrespect for you, but uh, I don't, uh, that's not what I feel. And it's it's interesting if, if there's a physical relaxation and a real sati, a, a mindfulness and sampajanya for the situation, the, word, the, the best words come, you know, the words that fit the situation even if the words are i don't know what to say and sometimes that's the best thing to 
yeah, I'm, I, I have no answer for you. I don't know what to say. And if you're coming from a sincere place, it's like, oh, well, yeah, thank you. I was asking too much. Sorry, sorry, sorry. <laughs> so that's a, a few things about being drawn into people's moods and expectations. But uh, mindfulness of the body is extraordinarily helpful in that. Was there another piece? Yeah. Pat. Um, at first I was going to ask about fixed view only, but now also more about meta. The fixed view, uh, so we should try to offer our opinion uh, unless asked because you don't want to cause conflict because you have opinions. You just no, it's a, I wouldn't say so. I think it's totally okay. Um, if it's presented as it looks this way from from my perspective and you can you can create that kind of a introduction like uh, this might sound very different from what you were saying but from my perspective or my experience has been xyz so it's totally okay to express opinions but giving it a framework rather than this is this is this is actually the truth <laughs> Yeah, you're wrong, and what I'm telling you, words like actually are dangerous. Uh, but to, just to say, um, to speak sincerely and from your own perspective and say, well, that's, that's really interesting. I didn't see it that way before, uh, because looking at this situation, uh, you know, what came to my mind was uh, you know, X, Y, Z. And so then you're presenting your point of view, but it's not an attack. You're not putting the other person down. It's it's respectful, genuine, and kindly. So we shouldn't be afraid of having opinions, but also recognizing that they are just opinions. Um, also about meta, um, um, I was told by quite a few Jan, you cannot uh, send loving kindness to people who died, and yet. I also was told when you die, you reborn immediately. So why can't we just kind of send loving kindness to them in their next life? That's one thing. And <laughs> also you seem to like send to all of them, but it was, you know, is it better than specifically reciting each one in your life? Uh, there's a few things there. Firstly, I don't know where this idea that you shouldn't send meta to people who've died has come from. It's totally weird to me. It's I don't I don't know where that comes from. It's certainly not it's not in the Pali Canon, and no, none of the teachers that I have ever had have have uh, ever encouraged that. So I I really don't know where that comes from. I know I've heard people talk about that and say, oh the 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 teacher said you shouldn't do this. I, why? It's kind of crazy to me. So, all beings without distinction, whether whether they're um, in this human world at the moment, or they're in some intermediary state, or they're in some other realm, wherever, whatever, all beings. You can use the microphone, then people if, can hear you. If they die, you can um, send like merit to them but not meta. 
I, I really don't understand where that comes from. It seems a very weird idea. With all due respect to whichever Ajahn's said that, like, doesn't doesn't make sense to me. Oh, may all beings be happy except for this one, this one, this one, this one, this one. Like, it's ridiculous. And people are dying every day. You know, millions of people die every day. And so why should they not be receiving the loving kindness of, of others? Like, so it's kind of weird to me. I, don't, I, I really don't know what the logic is behind that. So I, I wouldn't go along with that as a principle. And also, yeah, in terms of the, the teachings about rebirth, it can be uh, that uh, one life comes to an end and another life uh, begins immediately, but there can also be what they call intermediary states, sometimes for a long time, called the antarabhava. It's a Pali word. So um, there can be a, a, um, a, a gap where the... When 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 uh, like when the the Buddha was talking to Vachagota and Vachagota says, "What is it that sustains a being when one life has come to an end and before the next life begins?" The Buddha says, "Tanupadana, craving craving is the fuel that sustains a being, and that antarabhava it can be it can be a long time, it can be years. Time is elastic in these different dimensions," they say. So, uh, and there was a, a third question. Individual well, um, names. When yeah, you can do. I mean, like when we do um, uh, Parita chanting or dedicating blessings, sharing of merit um, for at. Uh, uh, Amaravati is virtually every single day at Anamodana time. We're reading out the names of people who passed away, people making offerings, dedicating the punya for for various relatives and friends, or for people taking, you know, the kids taking their school exams, or people who passed away, or people who are going into hospital. So, um, yeah, dedicating blessings and sharing merit or offering loving kindness to. Um, People, whether they're in the human world, whether they whether they are um, have passed on into a, another realm or been reborn, then uh, certainly you can uh, dedicate blessings and uh, and share share punya with with particular people. I mean, literally, it's every single day at Amravati, it's very very rare that we don't read out somebody's name at the. The morning chanting, or usually the the evening chanting, or the mealtime, the anumodana, uh, dedicating blessings every day almost. And I, you know, I do feel that's that's useful. It's uh, because with these um, these kind of things, you are creating a a psychological connection of some kind. And geography doesn't really matter. You know, the mind doesn't start one place and stop some other place it's uh your minds are uh, uh connected so uh spreading loving kindness sharing sharing blessings geography doesn't matter anywhere in the world is okay no postal rates concerns yes at the back there 
Namaskar, Prajan Jaka. I have a question concerning about the book Ubeka um, in one of the topic about inner voice, inner voice, inner voice, which it said that it could create the quality of meditation, but at the same time, if you concentrate too much, it might obstruct the quality of the meditation. And you said about the nada yoga, nata yoga. So if one have the inner voice. You mean inner voice or inner sound? Uh, inner sound. It's, inner it's, sound, a, it's yes. a book, yes, maybe, yes, sorry. Yes. Inner, inner sound. Yeah. And if one have the inner sound, which is the techniques for nada yoga, mm -hmm. or how can we improve the quality of meditation? You know, if we hear the inner voice, inner, inner, inner sound. sound. Yes, yeah. sorry. Inner voice sounds like you're getting messages from. Yes, yeah, sorry. <laughs> inner but, sound. It's, yeah, uh, yeah. I was. It's like, in the book. Yes, I was considering. Um, talking about this to, uh, tomorrow, actually, in the um, meditation guidance. So it's a particular meditation method um, that uh, it's been used by different spiritual traditions over uh, many, many years. Uh, Lumpur Sumedha discovered it on his own. And uh, it's a little bit uh, more challenging in an environment like this, where you've got the, the um, well, wonderful and beloved air conditioning machines and also the crickets going in the background because uh, the what's called the nada or the inner sound is like a continuous uh inner sort of ringing tone that sounds very like crickets in the forest so if i pay attention i can i can hear the inner sound as well as the purring of the aircon and the uh, the other uh, forest sounds around us um, but it's quite similar and so for most people, if you turn the attention uh, towards the hearing, you can notice this continuous inner vibration going along in the background, rather like white noise from the speaker. If the speaker is turned on and the, the, no one is talking through it, a kind of subtle, continuous um, sort of silvery sound. So you can use that as a meditation object. And... Uh, uh, Lumpur Sumato, he first started to use it after he'd left Thailand and he was living in London. In, he'd been in Thailand for about 10 years, but because of the, the noise of the forest, he hadn't, he hadn't really heard it. Uh, but uh, in London, in, in those days, uh, it was the kind of city that would shut down at about 11 o'clock at night. So if you're sitting meditating late at night, the, the town is very, very quiet. And he began to notice there was this continuous inner sound going on in the background of his hearing. And uh, he's quite a, a creative and sort of experimental teacher. So he started to think, yeah, well, maybe you could use this as a meditation object. And he realized oh, he, uh, that you couldn't just hear it in the meditation, uh, in, in the vihara, but also out in the park or out on the street. Other sounds could be there, but you could still hear it. So over a couple of years, he experimented with it and saw, okay, you know, how you could use it. You could concentrate on it to the exclusion of other things, or you could just let it be a background to um, other uh, perceptions. Uh, and so then in about, after Chithurst Monastery opened, 
and uh, we had the first retreats there in about 1980 or 81. He started teaching it to the community as a particular meditation method. So uh, I found it was very, very helpful. It's a good kind of alternative to um, mindfulness of breathing, particularly um, if the mind gets uh, very, very quiet and everything calms down, the breath can get very, very slow or you just uh, have very few breaths per minute uh, and or long spaces between the breaths, whereas the inner sound is very continuous. And uh, it has many attributes that are also very helpful in terms of meditation. Uh, you can't uh, change it according to your own will. So like the breath, you can choose to breathe in or breathe out. You can make a long breath or a short breath. You can't kind of do anything with uh, nada. It's uh, You either pay attention to it or you don't. <laughs> you can't make it change. You can't uh, you can't sort of make it stop or or start. It's it's always there. So that absence of personal control is helpful. Uh, also, that um, that kind of continuity is a um, that ever presence is a, a, a you know almost symbolic of the Dhamma itself, uh, apparent here and now, timeless, encouraging investigation. You know. It's a, it's a sense object, but it has these attributes that echo some of the the qualities of, of Dhamma itself. And so uh, it's uh, I feel it's very helpful in that respect. You can use it uh, for concentration, to um, deliberately to f focus on that and uh, and shut everything else out. So you can use it to strengthen samatha, concentration. Uh, and if you do, then the, the more you pay attention to it, the louder it gets or the clearer, or the more sort of layers of sound you can hear within it, different frequencies. And, and also there's a, an effect whereby the, the more you concentrate on it, the brighter the mind becomes. So it becomes easier to concentrate. Whereas for some people, the more you focus on the breath, the more the mind inclines towards sleepiness. So the nada works in the opposite direction so that you, uh, it makes the mind very, very bright. And so sometimes it can be too bright, so that you're, you're lying there in bed at half past one in the morning, like, um, well, I'm awake. <laughs> My mind is very bright, but I, I, I was feeling a bit tired, but it's, uh, the, uh, the, power, you know, the power is turned on. So it's a, um, it, it can be... Uh, so if you concentrate on it too much, it can be over-energizing. Like we were talking about piti and the qualities of, of pana, the energy in the body. So it seems to be in some ways connected to that uh, prana system, chi, the kind of body energies. <clears throat> different traditions talk about it in different ways. Within the yogic tradition, hatha yoga, then they have uh, sort of various ways that they talk about that energy connected to the different chakras. In the Sikh tradition, they talk about it as the yoga of inner light and sound. And uh, <coughs> they have um, various different spiritual traditions have talked about it in different ways. So uh, in the Vedic tradition, it's also called the Brahmanada, the divine sound. So uh, 
the the encouragement that uh, Lumpo Sumedo would always give is like, don't write a big story about it. You know, don't think that because you can hear this sound that it somehow means you're close to enlightenment. It's just a sound. You know, uh, it's it doesn't uh, have a uh, have to have a huge amount of spiritual significance, but it, it can be. Even though some traditions do talk about it in very elevated ways, like uh, like Brahmanada, the you know the the divine sound or the um, such like, it's best to sort of say, well, it's a sound. And physi physiologically, uh, people say, well, it's just the the residual firing of the nervous system. <laughs> well, whatever it is, you can hear it. Yeah, and sometimes it's. Uh, for people who have had a different kind of discipline, like a, if you're a yoga practitioner and developed a lot of body awareness, or if you're a dancer, then you might feel it more as a physical sensation rather than hearing it as a sound. So it's not always in the hearing realm, but it's a, a continuous vibration that can be noticed. So then, uh, so it can be used as a support for concentration, but also as a support for insight. So just like right now, I can hear it as I'm talking to you, and it's there in the background, so that if you develop it as a kind of backdrop to experience, so then it helps the mind to remember, oh, this is seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, arising, and passing away. It's like a, it's like going to a, a, a film and, and, uh, and noticing the screen that the light's being projected onto. It's like you're aware of the screen being there, and it, and it reminds you, oh, this is a movie. <laughs> Uh, helps you to not get lost in the matrix, as it were. So that that um, it's both usable as a support for insight and support for concentration. One of the books we haven't got available is called Inner Listening, that uh, says exactly what I just said, but in print. So there isn't a Thai version yet, but uh, it's there on our, our website as a. English version. So five o'clock has come around again, and uh, even though this was this was all in English, I hoped that uh, people could understand enough. And I I realize I do speak quickly and sometimes use long and strange words, but hopefully uh, everything is recorded so that you can go back and revisit. Like, what was that? <laughs> if you need to. <laughs>